Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. So I am sitting today with two people who work for an organization called Baderech L'Hachlama, which means On the Road to Recovery. And I'll say a minute how I found out about this organization. Uh, the two people who are sitting with me are Alona Apt, who is one of the leaders of the community of the organization in Israel. And I am also sitting with Myron Yehoshua, who is one of the volunteers and active participants in the project about which you'll learn in just a minute. So how did we find out about this organization? A few months ago, I was sitting on a Shabbat afternoon reading one of Aleph Bet Yehoshua, who is one of Israel's great living novelists now. Um, I was reading one of his more recent novels. I don't actually know if it's come out in English. It's called Bamin Hara or Hamin Hara in Hebrew, The Tunnel. I'm not sure if it's out in English yet. If it's not, it probably will be. Anyway, he mentions this organization, Baderech L'Hachlama, which uh, picks up Palestinians, mostly from either the West Bank or Gaza, I guess, and drives them to various places in Israel to enable them to be to have access to the health care that they've been permitted to get, and then takes them back. At least that's what he said in the book. We'll find out how accurate that is in a minute. And I was so struck by this incredible idea, but it was Shabbat, so I couldn't look it up online. I had to make a little flag in the book to remind myself after Shabbat uh, to look it up. And I looked it up, and sure enough, it's a real organization. He did not make it up for the novel. Uh, and we spent a little bit of time sort of reaching out to the organization and finding two people who, uh, who felt comfortable enough in English to be able to share with us their thoughts and their experiences. So first of all, both uh, Alona and Myron, thank you very much for taking the time to do this with us. And uh, Alona, let's start with you. Before we talk even about Baderech L'Achlama, since you're one of the leadership of the group, why don't you tell us first a little bit about yourself, what you do when you're not volunteering for this organization, and then um, tell us a little bit about the organization, its roots, what it does, and we'll come to Myron in a little bit. Okay, my name is Alona Apt. I'm uh, a mother of three. I'm a daughter of two immigrants that uh, came to Israel, my mother from England, my father from South Africa. They met at Ulpan, and a year later... I was born, um, and I am uh, the founder and CEO of Hot Media Group. Uh, Hot Media Group is a we, we 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 were actually the very first place in the world that suggested uh, to have for children a preschool channel. Today it's in many countries, and there are many preschool channels. But we were actually the very first in the world, and I still remember people saying to me, "If that's such, such a good idea to have a preschool channel, how come there's no such thing in other countries?" Uh, so that's what I'm do. I work in television. Wow. Okay. Great. And tell us a little bit about the organization itself and how you got involved with it, or how long it's been around, and basically what its purpose is, and so forth. Baderech Lachlama Road to Recovery um, was set up ten years ago. It actually stemmed from a personal tragedy of the founder Yuval Roth, 
Uh, Yuval uh, was a very private person, not very politically engaged, but his brother, brother was uh, murdered by Hamas when he left uh, his uh, reserve duty base. And uh, Yuval joined the, the circle of bereaved families. And uh, one day, one of his Palestinian friends in the circle asked whether he could help him out because his brother who had cancer had to be uh, had to receive treatment in Haifa. And Yuval said, sure, no, no problem. And very quickly, all his uh, Rolodex and contact people and neighbors and families were recruited to uh, drive other people. And uh, they ran this kind of uh, garage operation for some time. And then Yuval met the uh, manager of Leonard Cohen, the singer and poem, poet and singer. And he heard about what Yuval was organizing and he said to him, he, he just pulled out a checkbook and wrote a check and said, hey, this is for your organization. And Yuval said, we, we're not an organization, it's just family and friends. So he said, well, get a move and get it organized as an, as an official organization. So we already for 10 years, an official NGO, organized NGO, which is totally best based on... Um, volunteers, um, and, um, and, and thank you for the credits that you gave me, but it's, it's a very um, horizontal organization where everyone just tries his best according to what each one can do. So people are basically involved in going to various pickup points, right, where they can pick up I'll, Palestinians. I'll, I'll, say what, I'll, I'll say what we do. In, in principle, what we do is very simple. Each volunteer, rides his own personal car, goes to a checkpoint, one of the many throughout the border of Israel, also on the Palestinian Authority and also in Mahsom Erez, that's for Gaza. And we give a ride to uh, people that need treatment in Israel uh, uh, or to the hospital or back. It's, it's just a very small leg of the long road these people have for recovery in the thoughts that, that these people, in any case, are having a hard time with their health, worrying about their dear ones, it's very difficult. You have to start a treatment day, so at least we can help in this small leg, especially as at most of the checkpoints, there's no public transportation, and, and they're not coming in with private vehicles, and it would be too expensive to take taxi. So first of all, I mean, it's amazing, but first of all, approximately how many people are doing this on a given week, let's say? Oh, every day we have over 110 trips because we, we take from, from each, this is every day. At the total, I mean, I, I just was looking at last year's report, we did nearly 1 million kilometers, all our volunteers. We have more than 700 active volunteers. So, and, and it's about nearly 13,000 what we call trips per year. That means forth and back. Uh, and uh, this is helping about 2,200 um, patients, Palestinian patients. Most of them are children. Most of them are with uh, life-threatening diseases. And what percentage and, are from the West Bank and what of Gaza? Just out of curiosity, it doesn't really matter. I'm just curious. I'm not sure exact numbers, but I would say that at the moment, it's still the majority is from the West Bank, mainly because with Gaza, the, we, there's much more difficulty to get permission 
coming for treatments, not necessarily on the Israeli side, but from the Hamas side. So uh, you, you must remember that the people that, that we drive are people that officially got permission to get the treatment in Israel. And the treatment is actually paid by the Palestinian Authority or Hamas because it's not on the expense of the Israeli citizen. So that's an important point to make. Okay. Right. So you have to be a certain place probably in society in certain cases to be able to get that approval, I guess, on the, on the Palestinian Although the people we ride, I, uh, Miron would know more than me because he, he does it actively now and I, for the last few years, have not been driving, but I think most of the people are people, just just everybody people. <laughs> it's oh, not necessarily, no, and, and on the contrary, it's people that have less financial abilities and, and our assistance is even more valuable for them. Okay, so I was going to ask you about that. What Before the organization was created, how did these people manage? In other words, they would come across the checkpoint. They have approval from both sides to enter Israel. Presumably, there's a hospital waiting for them to give them the treatment. How did they get there? So uh, some of them would, would pay a private uh, taxi driver or get organized with some distant relative that would come and pick them up. But we know for a fact that for some families, their financial situation is so poor that this would maybe prevent them of giving the treatment needed for the child. Yeah. Now, if a family in Ramallah, let's say, God forbid, needs to have their child go to a hospital, how do they find out about your organization? Who makes the match? How do they work? Okay. So, so uh, we, we have our coordinators on our side and there's Palestinian coordinators the, the contact is done by the family to the Palestinian coordinator, and it's usually from word to mouth. Some of the doctors and nurses may already tell them, if you're going for treatment in Israel, you may want to be aided by this organization. And then, for instance, Naim El-Baida, who is our main coordinator in the uh, West Bank, so he would say, so he will call our coordinator and say, this is a child, three years old, I need a safety seat for three years old with his mom, tomorrow, six o'clock, and, so, and that's how it works. And on the Israeli side, we have like an online uh, operation where we just, each volunteer can go in and, and volunteer for each day and time and the frequency that is at his convenience. So there's not, it, it's not a structured organization where you have to commit every Monday to to do this and that. And that's part of what makes it possible for people to join and do what they can. Wow. So what, aside from the fact that this is obviously saving lives, because there are people clearly who would not be able to do this if it weren't for you. And even if they were going to manage to do it somehow, it certainly makes a very stressful time in their lives infinitely more manageable by knowing that there's a, a warm human being on the Israeli side who's going to drive them, who speaks Hebrew, who cares about them, who's going to try to help them out. I mean, it's just on so many levels. And any one of us who's been involved in a medical system at any time in our lives know that it's very stressful. And even if you're in your own country, in your own language, uh, you enter a hospital and it's a different universe and there's different rules and expectations. And so this does so much good on so many different levels. I would imagine, though, that there are some kinds of relationships that probably develop out of this beyond the actual just taking trips back and forth, whether it's group-wise or individual-wise. Is that a correct assumption? Yes. Um, the, the First of all, I think 
uh, Yuval, the founder of the organization, is a very modest person, and his his the the challenge that he put was a, a big and modest one. <laughs> he said each ride is a is an opportunity for us to make a small piece. Each one hour in the privacy and the intimacy of a, of a private car, we sit. Sometimes uh, the pa- each patient is accompanied with one person. So sometimes they're too tired. They, they woke up at four o'clock in the morning. They've had a long ride till the moment that they met our volunteer at six o'clock in the morning. So sometimes they just fall asleep. But sometimes a conversation starts, sometimes one may know a little Hebrew, sometimes in English. Few of us volunteers know Arabic. Uh, but we do have uh, uh, Arab-Israeli volunteers that can help us out on translation, and we, ha- we can call them in on the phone and ask for their assistance if we want to communicate. And so there's, the, I would say, the short uh, one-time interaction. And many times there's some kind of a personal click her child is the age my child is, she's a teacher, I'm a teacher, I don't know, different personal clicks. And some people then say, when is your next treatment? Because many of these patients are people that have to come back for multiple t- treatments. And, and quite uh, many of our volunteers, they say, you know what, please fit me in when she has to come in again for treatment. So there are some personal connections like that. And some have really become very warm connections. Like there's one volunteer, he doesn't drive for a long time. He's a Holocaust survivor himself. But he got to know a family that that the child was treated in Rambam. And the child's condition deteriorated and he had to have a kidney transplant. And during all the long process of the transplant and the recovery, he, he really became a friend of the family, knowing very well the parents and brothers and sisters and so on. Um, and, and unfortunately, not always some, some of the patients pass away. And, and I think one of the most uh, moving things that, that our volunteers do is not only we try to give a hand for the living, but also when someone when a family loses their dearest, we, we go to, to pay condolences. And, a, and I think it's, all, it's always a very well-received and very appreciated gesture by, by the families that we visit. And I would imagine that the visits happen in the West Bank, but obviously not in Gaza, right? I would assume. Not in Gaza, no. Right. And not yet. One day, hopefully one day. All right, so we're going to come back to you, um, Alona, in a bit. So, but thank you all very, thank you very much for all of that. Uh, so Myron, let's start with what's with you. Just a little sort of about yourself, how you ended up where you are, what you did when you're not doing and then we'll talk about your involvement with the organization. So I came on Ali. I immigrated to Israel from America. I was born and raised uh, in Minneapolis 50 years ago. This year is my 50th Jubilee anniversary. Um, living on Kibbutz Kvaratzion, which um, actually is the first uh, kibbutz, the first settlement, and one of the few kibbutzim that was established on the West Bank uh, after over the Green Line uh, after the war in 1967 by um, children of um, who by people who were actually born to before 1948. That's a story 
in itself. Um, I've been living on the kibbutz, working on the kibbutz in different in different fields in agriculture and education and and in this industry. And I recently retired, um, so I could spend more time also in a, an initiative that we have in the Gush Etzion area that connects Israelis and Palestinians in the area. But before I actually before I um, retired is when I started the um, drive for Road for to Recovery because my work was in Beit Shemesh and Road to Recovery says we have to get the people out early. We have to get them on time to the hospitals. So I would go at six o'clock in the morning, go to a checkpoint, take someone to the hospital in Tel Aviv and drive back to Beit Shemesh. So for me, it was like on the way to work that I could add this little extra mitzvah, this extra good deed. So how'd you find out about the organization? Well, that's a good question. Actually, I think I found out through, by knowing you, Val is also involved in in another um, initiative, if I'm not mistaken, and Alona can correct me, and that has to do with um, medical clowns. Is that what it's called? I think so, yeah. Is that true, Alona? He, he's a juggler. Yuval is one of Israel's finest jugglers. He, right. he does every okay. year an international convention for jugglers. <laughs> and I know he has, somehow he gets juggling things into Gaza, and he's connected with clowns and jugglers in Gaza. I mean, Things that are even crazier, I think, than this. But at any rate, um, so I knew of him from there. And I just decided that, you know, just is this is perfect for me. It fits into my day of going to work. You know, I had contact with Palestinians in my area. But this is one way that I could see I could do something very constructive, very specific, and know that every kilometer that I'm driving, I'm doing something actual. It's not only preparing or um, something potential. I think it's important to point out that you're not out of central casting for a, a person who would do this, right? I mean, you pointed out that you live in Faration, which again, is people, just make sure people understand because not everybody knows the Israeli yeah. map is over the green line. So in international discourse, it's called a settlement and uh, it's a religious settlement. It's where most people that are religious. Um, and so you don't usually think of religious settlers as the people who are going to drive these Palestinians from checkpoints to hospitals or from hospitals back to checkpoints and so forth. And I think one of the things that's really super important about having you specifically ad hominem on this particular conversation is because partly what we're trying to do in this whole series of podcasts with Israel from the inside is to really break misconceptions. And I think people outside the country have a sense that people on a certain part of the Israeli political spectrum would want to do this. And people on other parts of the Israeli political spectrum probably wouldn't want to do this, uh, but life is much more complicated here. And um, did I get a sense because you used the word mitzvah that some of this actually is a reflection of your religious convictions or your religious worldview in some way? I would say yes. It's definitely clear to me that um, what I'm doing is not just a, it's just a, not a mechanical thing. It's not doing your good deed for the day, but it's actually part of creating a, that my identity as an Israeli here. You said that the term settler is, I forgot exactly how you defined it, is the term that's used internationally. internationally. And I've come to decide that I'm an unsettled settler. I can't, um, I can't run away from the label because that's what I am and that's what we're doing. It's me as a person, perhaps not. But I think that the settlement movement in general is overly settled, is too settled into itself. And that's why, sadly, I think while I may not be the, um, this, I may not seem like this is, I'm typecast for the job. It's because I'm one of the few settlers, if there are any others, I don't know, there might be a couple who are doing this. 
Um, and people in my community who know that I'm doing it, so some of them have come to me and say, it's such a nice thing that you're doing, it's so good, I'm just too afraid to do it. Um, no one sees it as being something over the wall, over the board or anything like that. Um, they see it as being a mitzvah as doing good. And a few people might think, you know, you should be spending your time really helping our own a little bit more. Okay. Hey, everybody can think what they want to think. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the interactions that you've had with, how long have you been doing this? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> Corona has really knocked my biological clock off. So and my memory clock, I get, but, uh, I've been doing it for a few, for a few years, probably about four or five, I guess. I'm not exactly okay. I'm sure. And approximately yeah. on average, let's say like once so, a week. Yeah, like I, tr I tried to do, when I was working, it was once a week, you know, or twice a week. Um, very easy because I was going to Beit Shemesh. Once I retired and I was starting to do more things on the kibbutz, uh, it became, I was a little bit more selective. And also as a kibbutz member, I have another problem, and that is that the kibbutz owns all of the vehicles. And uh, I don't have my own private car. So I have to do it at times when the vehicles are, av are available. I've also noticed that uh, there's an, another important, I think, advantage to me being a driver. And that is that I don't necessarily have to meet or take someone to a checkpoint. I can take them closer to home. Um, I can tell the a story or a case that's a, that I... I closer mean, to home because where you live right, is I right live, amongst... Exactly. I live you know, seven minutes away from the village of Beit Omar. Um, yesterday, they were having trouble, you know, Alona said something really very important, and that is the organization is organized and they have this, they have an app and you can go in, you can choose the hours, et cetera, et cetera. But life is not as organized as that. And the beautiful thing about the organization, it's so grassroots and the volunteers who are, manning the station. They have a station with WhatsApp groups and telephoning. Who can come now to pick people up? We're missing a driver. All of a sudden, we have a case of someone who got stuck late and he it's, all, it's eight or nine o'clock at night. Who can get to the hospital to bring them home? And it's not automatic. It's people really giving their heart and soul um, and being very totally flexible about when they do things. And also the, the people who are going to the hospitals themselves they sometimes have to wait an hour or two until a driver gets to them. If I go from to pick someone up, I went to pick someone up yesterday um, from Faretzion to the hospital. It's like an hour, an hour and a quarter, depending on traffic, et cetera. And someone is released from the hospital and they, they were waiting, you know, for over an hour until I finally got there. And they really, really had actually a long two days in the hospital. It was a, a little a couple that was a little bit more elderly. And uh, they said, you can either take me to Tarkumia or Husan. Which, are the tech which is two checkpoints, right? Takumi is a little bit further from home, and maybe, and Husan is closer to home. But uh, they said whichever one is good for you, we'll find a taxi. They spoke in, in Hebrew. Uh, no, and my a little bit of Hebrew. My Arabic is not good enough, but it's enough that uh, we can laugh together. That's what <laughs> over my Arabic and figure out what we're doing. Okay. And I tried to explain to them that I'm from Gush Etzion. Where do you live? And they say Hebron. Now, when someone says Hebron, we think. That's the city of Hebron, but Hebron means the area of Hebron. And the area of Hebron actually comes up to the village of Beit Omar, which is you know, five, ten minutes away from my home. So I said, I'll take you home. I don't have to take you to the checkpoint. They lived in a village called Seir, which is a little bit further on. And for them, this was like a saving of energy and, and I think also the connection and understanding that um, this car that I was driving was sort of reminds me, if we want to talk about the religious identity, 
about um, Abraham, who we just recently read in the last week's Parsha, last week's portion of the Torah, that Abraham welcomes guests in his tent. So in a way, my my car is a tent of uh, of welcoming strangers who hopefully are not strangers but become neighbors. Right, and instead of people coming to the tent, the tent goes to the exactly. strangers, right? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, the tent picks up and moves over. Yeah. It's really extraordinary. Have you, um, so you've done probably several hundred of these, right? I mean, um, because if you said approximately, give or take once a yeah. week, and for four years, but, whatever, yeah. a couple hundred of them, I don't know how many. What other, can you share one or two other memories of things that you've done that kind of stick out to you as being? Well, the, the one that's important now is really one neighbor who the son has to go in for treatment about once a month or so, and they also have to get medications. And he also has had, I think in the last like half year, three times that he's gone in emergency. And I go up to the entrance to their village and take them. They speak Hebrew. The boy speaks Hebrew. The mother speaks Hebrew. The, the father speaks Hebrew. And they know that sometimes they try to bypass um, Derek Lachlama because they can call me direct. But I say, you know, order the place just in case I can't do it. And we try to arrange the timing so everything will be perfect as long as He's flexible to get, he has to pick up medications. He needs a big car. So as a kibbutz member, I can order a bigger car. Um, so we really have this ongoing connection. And this is a family that also, besides having their own problems, is actually involved in a, in a voluntary organization in their community for disabled children. So I've been learning about that as well. And that for me is meaningful to learn more about what's happening in my area itself. Because we normally as as settlers, as Mityashvim, whatever you want to call us, um, who live close to the Palestinians don't necessarily have any idea what's going on in their community itself. And this is really important. And a couple of times I've gone out at 10 o'clock at night in order to take him on an emergency drive to the hospital. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, some of our listeners may remember that we did an episode, um, I don't know, a couple of months ago with Shira Lawrence who founded 0202, which is actually a nonprofit that translates East Jerusalem social media posts from Arabic into Hebrew and West Jerusalem social media posts from Hebrew into Arabic because of the same thing. We live literally around the corner from each other and we just don't know what's happening in the in the other communities. And so this is a very different manifestation of the same idea that we're, we, we share this space. We, don't, we live very proximate to each other. Let's try to Let's try to, you know, learn a little bit about each other and experience what the other's going through. So, Alona, I remember that before we went on live, um, you were telling me a little bit about this uh, day that you plan for everybody, uh, for both the drivers, the volunteers, as well as I think some of the participants, some of the people who are, uh, some of the people who are helped to be taken to various places. Um, tell us a little about this day that you organized. I know Corona got in the way of it a little bit, but um, in pre-COVID days or post-COVID days, what is this? And what, what happens in it? Well, for me, it started because I, I, I found it more difficult to do the drives and I was looking for a meaningful way where I could contribute. And, and you know, your mental and emotional health are an important ingredient in, in, in making it. And um, I took upon myself to organize each year a day at the sea. And what we have I've done it already uh, four times. Uh, unfortunately, because of COVID this year, we didn't do it, but we're looking forward to finding a, a new ways to, of doing it in the future again. And we have about 200 Palestinians coming in. It's, we permit each family of, of a patient that we ride to have five members of the family because we want it to be a family event that for a family that has always 
uh, associated their their family member of bringing grief and sorrow it's an opportunity also to make the brothers and sisters give them a good time so we have we bring in four buses of of Palestinians that come in and we have about 100 uh, Israeli volunteers and and with with great satisfaction I, I can share with you that with each year we've had a growing number of Arab Israeli volunteers joining us and and this is a additional uh, value I think added for us all because they're very rare opportunities where Jewish and Arab Israelis can be on the same side giving out a humanitarian hand to someone else and it gives a very strong sense of sharing and bonding for good purpose so it, it, it was really like another added value and it's a moment I remember I, on the first year that we did it it was on a we got a kibbutz gave us a the uh, facilities to use. Um, there was a, a, a big uh, catering organization that, uh, gave, that donated the food. Like, you know, it's, we, we, we get everything donated for this event because it's a costly event. And um, I remember just looking at the beach with all the people sitting, eating watermelon, uh, looking at the kids splashing water at each other, in the water, and I remember standing next to Yael, Yuval's wife, and I, and I said to her, wow, what a sight. So she said to me, that's how pieces can look like. And, and, I, and, and it's really a very, very, it's one of the highlights of my year for me. And I hope also- Yeah, I can understand why. Because I'm just sitting here listening to it, I'm getting very moved even just listening to it, just imagining it. You know, the sea is, uh, the sea is very powerful. Right. I mean, for all of us, um, just to go to the sea and watch the waves roll in, there's something very calming about it. There's something very vast about it. And what I think a lot of our listeners may not realize, of course, is that the vast majority of people who live in the West Bank have never seen the ocean. And exactly. um, one of the more moving stories that I heard, not about Badarek Lachlama, but a different organization, which was also operating in Gush Etzion, um, from one of our students at Chalem College who was volunteering with that organization, which brought teenagers together from the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. And there was one kid who was from an Israeli settlement, um, and the father wasn't entirely thrilled about his kid being involved in this youth group. And the family was actually, as the father and the kid were having this conversation, they were actually packing up the car to go to the beach. And um, the kid is pushing back at his father. The father's saying, you know, it's not a great idea and it's causing all kinds of rumors in the community and you should back off. And the kid said, absolutely not. And he actually wrote a long Facebook post about this sometime later. And then the kid said to his father, you know, here we are packing up the car to go to the beach. He's never seen the beach. And at that, that's something about that so deeply struck the father that the father said, call him, we'll take him. Now, I don't know exactly what had to be done to make that possible, but he ended up going. And um, the, the student of ours at Shalem, who was one of the counselors for this group, talked about how for the father, the Israeli father, the idea that this Palestinian kid, teenager, had never seen the beach, that was the first thing that brought the humanity of the situation. It wasn't then religious. It wasn't political. It wasn't territorial. It wasn't military. It was a teenager who had never seen the beach. And I think there's something just so beautiful about the story that you're telling about this day, because many of us have very powerful memories of and associations with beaches. I mean, the water is vast and both frightening and calming and infinite. 
Um, it's the perfect place to do it more than a, than a forest or a field. It's just, um, it's really an incredibly, incredibly beautiful story. You said there's about, what, 700 volunteers now who do this? Yes, we, we, have, we have listed more, but, but on the last survey we did, there were, there were 700, over 700 active drivers. Yeah. Okay, and um, since some of our listeners are Israelis, um, we'll, when we post it, we'll, of course, put a link to the website and all of that. But if Israelis want to join in, they can just go to the website and sign up to, to join. It, it, it's really the most friendly organization because you don't have, as I said, to commit to anything that is a big burden on your life. You can adjust it to your abilities. If there's a time that you can now do mornings, you can enlist once a week, once a month, once whatever. Yeah, they, they're welcome to make contact with us through our uh, website and we'll have a first conversation just to give them guidance. And of course, the, the, some people ha are worried that may, maybe it's, it's dangerous. So I would like to reassure them that it, it is not because these are people that A, have come for specific treatment and they've gone through all the procedures. And secondly, we meet them at the other side of the checkpoint. So they've gone through security. So for, for maybe that, I want to stress that people who join um, as volunteers, they get a refund on their kilometers or they can get a, a receipt that's um, recognized by the Israeli tax authorities as a contribution. So there's no expense as far as that goes. And the thing about being a friendly organization, you know, I, because of COVID and I had a little medical issue that I didn't drive like for six weeks straight. And I really was starting to feeling guilty. So I look at the list and I see they're calling for people and I see people replying and there's certain names that you see pop up all the time. And I felt I'm not doing anything. And then I, I signed up for one and uh, I get a call back. Oh, it's so great that you're going. And whenever you go, there's always someone on the other end of the line who is an Israeli who's super thrilled that you're part of it. You don't have to feel guilty if you can only do it once every two months even. Whenever you do it, every kilometer you're doing is you're doing good. And therefore, it's really worth joining. So that's really unbelievable. So, Alon, I just want to come back by way of wrapping up to something that you said when you said to the woman that you were talking to, Yael, I think it was, that when you see the kids splashing in the water, so this is what peace is going to look like. And this is not only what peace is going to look like. It may also be what brings peace. In other words, at a certain point, if peace isn't going to come top down, it's going to come bottom up from a sense of people just wanting a different reality. So it's a vision of what peace might, like, might look like, but it's also perhaps inching us forward towards something like that. And I just want to just want to add that we've done a number of episodes because we started doing this podcast in May. So it was right after the terrible events in Israeli cities, both Jewish cities and Arab cities. And we've done a variety of other things, even 0202. But I mentioned it's all about bridging um, between the local Jews and the local Arabs who don't really know each other. And this image that you were talking about before of Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs being on the same side of the team this time and reaching out to someone else, that's also unbelievably powerful because at that moment, these Israeli Arabs are really, they're Israelis. I mean, they are working as Israelis to make the resources of the Israeli medical system and the know-how of getting around Israel available to Palestinians. And however complicated their identity has to be, because it's not a simple identity, obviously, uh, at that moment, they're really, they are, they are Arabs, but they are 100% the Israeli part of this organization, which I think has to be very powerful for them to have that experience. And that also probably has to be very powerful for the 
Palestinians on the other side to say these are Arabic-speaking, perhaps Muslim, maybe Christian, but more likely Muslim people who are helping me out, and they're Israelis. In other words, it breaks all the preconceived notions of who's in what group and who's on what sides and where the lines run. And that's part of what this whole thing is about, is breaking those boundaries and notions. Yeah, I think what's what's nice about having such a wide variety of volunteers, each coming from a different uh, style of life and different settlement and, and occupation is that each of us brings in whatever his personality and life enables us. So um, I, I think the ripple effect happens, first of all, by me bringing my son to the day at the sea. And I and it was important for me that my, my son came, my partner came, my daughter came, because also they, they are... They are Israelis, but they have no contact with Palestinians. So I, I, I felt this is a good opportunity to, to offer this encounter. So it starts from the very close, but also, for instance, on the day at the sea, so we make it into an educational activity with the children in the kibbutz because we need people to help us out in the water because you mentioned that these are children that have never been at the sea. They don't know that the sea can be extremely dangerous as well. And we also want to make sure that they have a good time. So the, the, the youth of the kibbutz, we ask them to be uh, volunteers in the water and help out with the different water activities. So we make a meeting before and we bring Naim, which is the Palestinian coordinator, and he tells them about his life and his family. So... I, I think each such encounter widens the, the, the notion that, yes, uh, just a good human connection can, can be. It can be. And I think um, I can give you another example. We have several musicians for, that are uh, in the Philharmonic Orchestra. And then the, one day they came together and said, why, why don't we maybe organize a special uh, a concert so then it opens up uh, another group of musicians and music lovers and people that, that bought the ticket to come to the concert that know what we're doing. So I'm really a great believer in uh, the ripple effect. And, and it's really, if you look, even look at the numbers, I mean, over 13,000 trips uh, a year, just think about how many people-to-people -people encounters we have each year. I don't think there are many organizations that that can suggest that. So yes, unfortunately, the, it stems out of someone being not in good health and needing assistance. But if that's the situation, so at least we can leverage it for the good. Right, absolutely. And when those 13,000 or 13,000 divided by two, because it's both ways, those people go home, there's, there's not a chance that they don't have a somewhat different sense of who Jewish people are, of who Israelis are. It, it has to break some of the preconceived notions I, and, and, and the other direction as well I, for us about Palestinians. I, I would like to tell you one story. I, I remember, if you remember some years ago, there were two young soldiers that, that by mistake got into a Palestinian village across the border and they just got lost and the mob started to gather on them and it was a very nasty situation, life-threatening situation. And uh, two Palestinian uh, officers, uh, police officers, 
just grabbed them out and took them out and, and brought them safely back to the border. And an hour later, Yuval got an SMS from one of these officers, Palestinian officers, saying, my name is so-and-so, you, you helped my brother uh, two years ago, and I'll never forget that, and I'm glad that I could be back. So we, we're not looking for this uh, par, you know, straight one-to-one parallel action, but I think this story tells it all. Yep, and it's saving lives even beyond the people who are getting the rides. And that's really, um, there's, no, there's no value greater than that in the world, obviously. So uh, I just want to thank on behalf of all of us who uh, I'm assuming like many of the people listening who I didn't know about the organization, I'm sure many people listening didn't know about it before, uh, it's inspiring. It gives hope. Uh, it, it kind of just it gives us a, a belief that there is really a better tomorrow possible. And so for what you're doing for the actual people, but what you're doing for us also by inspiring us in this way, uh, my thanks to both of you for what you do. And my thanks to both of you for taking the time today to chat with us and uh, look forward to talking about other uplifting things down the road and in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.